There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a cold of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 18th of September 2013. I always start off the broadcast by advising any newcomers to look into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com website and helping yourself to lots of free audios for download where I go through the system, the big system you're born into. It's not as crazy as as it makes out to be. And I show you how you're living in a a contrived system, well-planned indeed, uh, and it's it's been on the go for an awful long time. I'm going to go back about 100 years to find the big foundations that set themselves up, tax-exempt foundations that uh, pretend that they're philanthropic. In other words, they guide society in the proper fashion, you see. And they also guide governments too, because they own thousands of think tanks across the world, uh, that advise governments on all social policies, foreign policies, and economic policies, and everything else too. So charitable foundations, as they call themselves, run the world. And they were set up by the top international money lenders of their day a hundred years ago. That also formed, they also formed private clubs like the Royal Institute for International Affairs, which sounds very official, but in fact it's a private organization. And uh, their counterpart for America, same, same organization as Council on Foreign Relations. And they have the same institute in every country across the planet pretty well today. So they're, this is the, these are the guys who plan the global agenda, the globalization of society, um, the standardization of a common culture down the road, uh, and the, the elimination of all national cultures as they go along too. That's all part of it as well. And the U.S. is the battering ram right now. It used to be Britain. But so they turned it over to the U.S. because Britain was flat broke with all the wars that they fight to to keep the the the, the private uh, central banks and so on on the go. So it's now the U.S.'s turn to do the same thing and be awfully unpopular too, and take the heat for it as well, and all the fallout from it as they push the agenda across the world and standardize the last few countries that that don't belong to the World Bank. They don't uh, have anything to do with the International Monetary Fund. They don't have private-owned uh, central banks, often by foreigners, and they're being standardized right now as we speak. So you're living through it. And plus, too, the culture and society has is, is drastically changing by design, and you're actually told what's now politically correct, and you're simply a bigot if you want to accept any, anything that's pushed down your throat, basically, and, uh, and that's your problem. And, of course, they even back it up by laws now. Now, when governments are in, are in charge of social culture and morals and so on, the rest of it, you're in a bad state altogether. You're being completely trained into a different society, not by your own judgments and so on, but by those at the top who run it by a plan. And there's no arguing with them at all on these things. So help yourself to CuttingThroughTheMedias.com And you remember too, you can also get print-ups, not just the audios, you can get print-ups of many of the talks I've given if you, if you are in English actually, and all the sites listed at CuttingThroughTheMedias.com If you go to AlanWattSentinel.eu, you can get transcripts in other languages for print-up 
and you bring me to you. Remember, I don't get backed by big organizations or big, big advertising and so on. And uh, I could certainly, but I don't. And um, I depend on the people to just to buy the books and discs at CuttingThroughTheMedias.com or donate. And you can help me take along here because it's awfully expensive. And this is full time, believe it or not. Even though right now I'm taking a couple of days a week just to get the wood in for the winter because I know it's going to be an awfully bad winter. And even for the last few weeks it's gone down to zero quite a few times, the freezing mark already. So we're in for it as we go through global warming and we get colder and colder. So... And again, I'll be back uh, full-time when uh, all this is done, hopefully. But I've got one problem after another to fix out in the meantime. Now, from the guest calendar, remember, you can order the books and discs using personal checks. Or you can use international postal money orders from the post office from the U.S. to Canada. You can send cash or use PayPal across the world, Western Union MoneyGram, and PayPal once again. Straight donations are seriously, seriously welcome. Now, as I say, the world is not as crazy as they'd like you to, to believe. And the job of the media has always been to keep you uh, either on board with some big agenda like wars and things. It's very old. And we know, for instance, that almost all the moguls in the world, the media moguls, the big chains of newspapers and television stations and all the rest of it, and radio stations, they, they, um, they, 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 the guys are actually members of the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, Royal Institute of International Affairs. So it's the same same bunch that really are the moguls that give you your chit-chat for the day, your thoughts for the day. And that's what they give you, thoughts for the day. Most of it you think is irrelevant, but uh, really it's meant to influence you and to give you your opinion, the correct opinion, the one that was decided for you by your betters. That's how, how it's so simple to do. Other stuff is trivia. And even the trivia is meant to create chatter, especially if, if there's emotion involved in the trivia. It gets you all chattering with each other and, and tweeting and all the rest of it and, and speaking sides and so on. It's so easy to con the general public and to play with their minds and so on. And most folk are oblivious to the fact it's been done to them. They simply get caught up in the topic. And emotion is good for that too. Here's an article here that uh, it's a really a rehash of something I've done before or read before on the radio. And uh, this is a recent, a recent um, update in it, basically. But it's the same thing. But it says, can governments influence the decisions and actions of their citizens without the public's conscious knowledge? Well, actually, they've always been doing it. I said, since 2010, the United Kingdom, uh, they had a government they, uh, which has a task force set up, nicknamed the Nudge Unit. Now, I've talked about Sunstein before in the U.S. government, who's in charge of the U.S. branch of the Nudge Unit. It says, which utilizes behavioral economics to come up with policies that can encourage and enable people to make better choices for themselves. In other words, it's psychological manipulation, you see. And they use many techniques. This is very old, old techniques. Long ago, in fact, they used a, a system, even in, in the when they had the Industrial Revolution, and they came up with what they called time in motions people, experts. They would go into factories and study how people did things, and they'd find to get the most production out of each individual, regardless of the physical consequences to the individuals, because they were ten a penny, uh, to help the production and help the shareholders get more money and so on. And there's new names for the same thing now. But now it's got into the whole thing about making you feel good about changing your behavior. Or guilty. Or even scared. That's what the law does, you know. 
So uh, here they are uh, at it again, admitting they've got it. And, and the one in Britain, I believe, too, has, has been has been privatised. Now, most things that run the world today are already they've always been private. As I say, the think tanks that advise governments on every kind of policy are privately owned. Now, those who own them have had tremendous power, right down to changing the psychology of the general public. Think about it. Nothing is missed out on here. And it says here, I was thinking back to, to Bernays. I've talked about Bernays so many times and put different videos on them up on the internet. If you go into the archive section on the website, cuttingthreemates.com, you'll find the, the links to the videos. But Bernays said to the advertisers, for instance, he says, rather than design your products to be bought by people who want to buy them, the general public, he, in other words, make good products, he said, alter the psychology of the public to suit your product. That's what he said. And by God, isn't that the truth, eh? Because I've done it across the board to everything you can imagine, not just products you're buying, but attitudes that you're, you're taking part in or, or adopting and so on. Uh, you're, you're being altered all the time. And governments, governments really are just the middlemen for this. Private organizations run the world. And, and all these private organizations are, are like a pyramid to the capsule and at the top. They're all connected, folks. But anyway, it says anyone who studies the markets, particularly anyone who trades, knows that human psychology plays a, a huge role in seemingly random market movements. The same line of thinking opens up the possibility there might be smarter and more cost-effective ways for governments to interact with the general public on a whole range of issues. And the obvious example is behavioral economics, often cited in literature, and so different outcomes you get when people are auto-enrolled into workplace pension schemes. Back with more after this. Hi folks, we're back cutting through the matrix talking about behaviour modification. Really, that's what it is. Uh, on behalf of government to the citizens, changing the citizens' perceptions and, and attitudes and behaviours. And although this article here is about a book, it's out. I mean, the book will tell you very little because they never tell you much at all uh, about the very important things that are going on. Even Kat Sunstein's uh, books aren't that detailed because, you see, the real secrets are still being used on you. And if they tell you about it all, then you start prattling about it and it wouldn't work so well, would it? Anyway, it says that, uh, oh, it says, talk about uh, the workplace pension schemes versus having the option to opt into those schemes. Many more people end up saving in pension schemes with auto-enrollment. Then it tells you why. It says, inertia plays a huge role in human behavior, meaning we're substantially more likely to continue sitting on our behinds than we are to get up and act, you see. And it's a, it's a fact of human life that uh, uh, we're living in an artificial system. Most folk don't even think about that. They think it's normal simply because they're born into it. There's nothing in this system that wasn't contrived by small cliques of people, very rich people, a long time ago, folks. That's why you're still running on a money system where it doesn't matter how much money you've got, they can devalue it any minute they want. And, and they can, they can, uh, increase prices whenever they want to. They can grab it if, if they want to and steal it. Which they've done already during the, the bank crashes and so on. And then you bail them out. I mean, this is what you think is normal because this is the only system you can imagine, but simply because it's the only one you've been told about because it exists. 
the whole system is, is not, not natural. The people who live in so-called primitive peoples, also called arrested development peoples, people who, this is what they call them at the top because they hate these primitive people. They can't make them work in this system. And they've, they've got to a, a, some sort of level, like the few tribes left around the Amazon basin uh, that aren't so much touched by the big gold diggers that are down there. But uh, they, they only have to work two hours maximum to four hours max a day. Four hours generates when they go off hunting. A whole bunch of the guys who go off hunting. And, uh, and they enjoy it, you see, because it's a natural thing to do for men. And the rest of the day is theirs to play around and talk to the children and, and everything else and so on. There's no pressure from outside forces. Our lives in the so-called advanced systems are, are, are run by outside forces in every aspect. And you never ever consider it at all. Because it's normal to you. You're born into it. You're raised with it. You think it's all quite natural. So, and it's not. It's not. It's to serve the ones at the top. We've been here for an awful long time. Awful long time, folks. Anyway, it says, one of the foremost theorists on the merging intersection between government policy and behavioral economics is Cass Sunstein. Now, he's actually a U.S. law professor with an interest in the overlap between law policy and economics. And he co-authored a book called Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth and Happiness with economist Richard Staller and heads up the Obama administration's Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. Now, the U.S. have their own branch of behavior modification for the general public, uh, copied on the British model. And so your own tax money is going to brainwash you folks and change the way you, you believe, believe about things or, 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 or do things or whatever. So in a recent paper, Empirically Informed Regulation, Sunstein draws on work designed to incorporate empirical findings about human behavior into economic models in order to suggest how regulation could be designed to be lower cost and more effective. It's all to do with economics for the boys at the top, who are getting richer all the time off of, well, all of you. Says lawmakers can achieve this by going with the grain of predictable behavior rather than against it. So, to speak, a general lesson he argues is that small and expensive policy initiatives can have large and highly beneficial effects. For instance, the more complex the choice you lay before people and the more perceived barriers they have to work through to enable that choice, the less likely you are to get them to move through that particular gate. Complexity can have serious adverse effects by increasing the power of inertia, Sunstein writes. Simplifying choices and removing the amount of paperwork that people have to fill in makes them much more likely to act. Obviously, if you're highly motivated to buy a house, you'll battle through the mortgage application reform, which is, of course, it's, it's really paying till you're dead. That's what mortgage means. It's just a compliment me. But it's a form, if the form was simpler, the dropout rate would be lower. The same is true of loan applications and so on and so forth. Next is how the UK government helped its citizens make better choices. Actually, of course, the British civil service has known about and exploited the power of inertia for decades, possibly centuries. And actually, the more destabilized the media appears and makes things appear to you, it's it's a a kind of cognitive dissonance. You're like a robot with two programs. You know, you do this on one occasion, do this on the other occasion, and here you are clicking between the two. You don't know what to do. And that's a result, really, of, of being hammered psychologically hammered by, oh my God, the banks are going to crash. Oh my God, we're off to war again, or possibly off to war again. Uh, and oh my God, the government's putting more laws out for, and they're raising taxes and, and so on and so on. You're, you're, you're overwhelmed, it seems. So that's a technique the government also uses you as they put through other, through other 
um, new laws, which make you fill in forms and so on, and make you do things. I mean, you're easier to control when you, when you literally are floating in space, getting hammered by the cosmic rays in all directions. In other words, I say Sunstein wants to go in the other direction, and one has to grant that in the context of government bureaucracy, this kind of thinking is, if not novel, as says people have, have, have absolutely been banging on about cutting red tape for a long time, at least helpful. One of the main factors that Sunstein wants to take into account is the fact that people, in fact, tend not to behave like the ideal rational citizen upon which the rational model is predicated. People procrastinate, neglect to take steps that impose small, short-term costs, but that promise large and long-term gains. The delay is starting to exercise until they're so overweight they couldn't start if they wanted to, or the delay is seeing a doctor about a nagging cough until their lungs are beyond salvation with cancer, and so on. So what can governments do? Government programs and funding should be channeled not just to informing people what they should do, but also towards designing programs that make it easy for people to act on the choices government wants them to make. The more specific and focused the message, the better. And that's why, for instance, on cigarette packages, most across the world now, uh, they'll often have no names on the things. And, and they're not displayed on site. You have to know what you're after or you can't get them. You've got to sort of describe it, you know, it's like giving a story to the person behind the counter. Things like that. As he puts it, in many domains, identification of a specific, clear, unambiguous path or plan has an important effect on social outcomes. Complexity or vagueness can ensure inaction, even when people are informed about risks and potential improvements. What appears to be skepticism or recalcitrance may actually be a product of ambiguity. The idea has caught on to the point where the UK government now has a specific policy-making unit focused on behavioural economy, and that's what they're calling this behaviour modification, and its implications for government policy. In 2010, the UK coalition government, impressed by what it knew of behavioural economics, decided to set up a group of 13 academics as an adjunct to the Cabinet Office, called the Behavioural Insights Team, I'll put the links up tonight for that, or the Nudge Unit. This group was given the task of finding smart ways of encouraging and enabling people to make better choices for themselves, but of course the people wouldn't know they were actually being guided to take them make those choices. The nudge unit's output was sufficiently impressive for government to seek to make the the unit the first policy unit to spin off from central government as a profit-making venture. They privatise it now. Now, as I said at the beginning too, can you imagine the power of these big foundations or the big corporations who get their hands in the power to change the, the given by the government to do what they want to do uh, and put all kinds of stories out in the press and so on to change the, the people's behaviour and so on and so on. I mean, something that advertisers are doing all the time. But what a godsend when government approves you and back you up and give you the go-ahead to do it. But it also means, too, there's political correct uh, units also attached to them for, for changing, you know, your, your, until you believe that two and two is five. That's happening already with the public, if you know what I mean. So the whole idea initially was to use behavioural economics to improve the effectiveness of government programmes and to find ways of getting more people doing the right thing, giving increased traction to public policy implementation. Back with more on this after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix talking about the nudge unit or behaviour modification in the general population by governments that hire professionals to do this for us and use all your tax money to broadcast that with little messages to make you change your behaviour. So you pay for your behaviour being changed. And it's all to benefit governments and and and, and uh, to give them more cash to play with to you know to, to prop up uh, failing big corporations or something like that or banks. Anyway, it says, when the government announced a spin-off of the unit back in May 2010, it praised the nudge unit fulsomely, saying the team was established to find ways of encouraging, supporting, and enabling people to make better choices, meaning the correct choices, ones that the government wants you to do to suit themselves at the top. Since then, it has delivered rapid results, identifying tens of millions of pounds of savings, spreading understanding of behavioural approaches within government, and developing a reputation as a world leader in its field. Well, I guess it didn't miss all the bank bailouts over there, because they've got tens of millions they saved from altering people's behaviour before that. So, I mean, it says, in other words, as far as the UK government is concerned, behavioural economics works. One has to remember that the comment was made to the, in the context of inviting bids from interested parties. As a government tries to spin out the nudge unit, so a certain amount of egging the pudding is inevitable. But the unit itself has a number of successful projects it can point to. One of one of these, and here's how they do a simple thing. This is a simple thing. You see, they won't tell you the, the detailed things about your your uh, opinions and society and things like that. You see, because they're working on you all the time with these things. One of these was when it tasked it, uh, to help the, the government improve the take up of attic insulation by householders to get you by. It's the big corporations, uh, uh, fluffy pink stuff, you know, expensive too. Since the team found that one of the reasons for the slow take-up was that lofts, attics, as everyone knows, are wonderful places for storing all those things that you don't really want to part with, but are unlikely ever to want again. Now, it doesn't say it here, but I know for a fact they put up TV shows that ran uh, showing you people who hoard things. That was That's why it was pushed by the government and funded to start off on television. Because they want you to clear it out to do something else and buy something. It's it's common stuff. It says, there are archetypal file and forget zones, the attics. So the unit came up with the idea of providing householders with low-cost labor to clean out their rubbish-filled lofts, which make make it easy for the householder then to move to the next step, namely installing the loft insulation. Step by step, they alter your behavior until they get what you want, you see. The point here is that you take a, a grand policy, the need to conform to the Kyoto Protocol, move to the next layer down, reduce the need for heating fuel, which lowers the UK's use of fossil fuels, then take a detailed look at what is preventing the type, uh, the take-up of what looks like something households should be wanting to do, namely reduce the cost of heating bills. Well, why, why don't bring them down to a rational level, the cost of the fuel in the first place? Because it's just stinking greed that keeps it so darn high, isn't it? Anyway, it says the approach produced a substantial increase in the take-up of attic insulation grants by the householders. And the unit has produced several research papers who stand up to scrutiny. The team's most recent paper called Applying Behavioural Insights to Charitable Giving provides yet another example of how nudge theory works in practice. The team started by focusing on understanding what the, why the, what the behavioural science literature suggests would work in practice by way of increasing charitable giving, and then conducted a series of trials and tests to see how these insights panned out in practice through the use of controlled randomised trials. They identified four behavioural insights. People give more when you make the process of giving easy, as for example, building in an option to automatically increase future payments in line with inflation. 
you get increased giving without the need for the individual concern to take additional action. And using auto-enrollment as a workplace mechanism for higher paid staff to donate with clear opts out. Uh, opt-outs. Again, this uses the power of inertia, drawing on uh, beneficial peer effects, knowing your peer pressure, by making acts of giving more visible to others in the same social group. And fourthly, actually they do at the checkout counters too, in most stores now too. Or you'd like to give to the blah blah blah, you know, things that have never helped anything, or cured cancers or whatever, you know. And the whole idea is to do it in public, so if you say no, you, you feel, oh my god, and you, you sort of shrink. You shrink in front of everybody. That's, that's the peer pressure. So you're calling the way that you can imagine. But anyways, I said, don't, don't expect too much from this article. It's very, very primitive stuff, simple stuff. Because the big, big things uh, I could do many, many shows on. And maybe one day I will. But it's because it's being used in you all the time. And it's for more nefarious reasons than the ones they're telling you here. It's not just money. And so, although Sunstein said, to Cass Sunstein, he said that, um, that uh, eventually they'll train the public to want to pay taxes and more taxes. So there you go. So I'll put that up tonight. But getting back to the beginning of the talk, I mentioned how, how we, when you're in space and you're getting bombarded with cosmic rays all conflicting with you and so on, it's easier to, to nudge and move you into different ways and so on. And you'll get conflicting things. We, we all know, for instance, that the United Nations has been pushing for years about sexualizing children and to have them masturbation in schools, literally uh, by the whole class participating. I've read the articles from the United Nations over the years on this broadcast. Uh, and uh, so uh, these things go on all the time. They keep pushing and pushing. And yet, then you get the, the opposite, you see. And it says, France to ban sexualized child beauty pageants, you see. And it says, the French Senate voted early Wednesday to ban beauty pageants for children under 16 and to impose up to two years in prison and steep fines for adults who try to enter children into such a contest. So we all said, well, that's good, isn't it? It looks like the French won't be getting their, their version of Little Miss Sunshine or Here Comes Honey Boo Boo, whoever that is, anytime soon. France's Senate voted Wednesday to ban beauty pageants for children under 16 and so on and give a fine or prison up to 30,000 euro. Uh, that's our cash over there. The amendment is part of a broader bill on women's rights, which will now proceed to the National Assembly, the French Parliament's lower house for debate and another vote. The senators who voted in favour of the measure argue that it will protect children from being prematurely sexualized through the use of heavy makeup and often provocative attire. The amendment was prompted by a parliamentary report entitled Against Hypersexualization and You Fight for Equality, which in addition to calling for an end to the pageants, encouraged a ban on adult-style clothing for children, including, including padded bras and high-heeled shoes. Let's not make our girls believe from a very young age that their worth is based only on their appearance. The author of the report, former sports minister and current senator Chantal Juano, said in an interview with Free French Daily 20 Minutes last year, Controversy surrounding the issue peaked in December 2010 when a French Vogue magazine published a photo spread featuring images of a 10-year-old French girl, Italian Burberry Blondeau, decked out in a tight dress, jewellery, high heels and makeup. The magazine argued that the photos were meant to capture a classic fantasy of young girls to dress up like their mother. But it, it caused outrage at home and abroad. It's hard to imagine outrage in France about anything sexual because if you walk along the streets in France, everything's happening in broad daylight, folks. You know. 
It says, if the bill is signed into laws, as expected, pageants like the annual Mini Miss Contest in Paris will no longer take place. So there you get what you think is the opposite. But don't forget, the United Nations is still pushing for further sexualization, hypersexualization, which they call it education, sexual education for children, by, by pushing. And I've read the articles, as I say, uh, I've got them all in the archive section, cuttingthroughmakes.com, where they promoted uh, like mutual masturbation in the classroom and stuff like that for very young children and so on and so on. So you, you, you're bombarded with these kind of things. You see the the the, 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 the negative and the positive the just conflicting and so on. That's to get you. All these kind of stories get you into that, that mood where you're easy because you just can't figure it out. And and then something else comes along and pushes you in the as as Sunstein would say the right direction. You see. Then you can contrast it with this article here. Now getting back to the last uh, that article I just read actually, it's interesting too that that. Um, Cyrus woman uh, who did her, her her bum stuff with the guy's groin on stage not long ago, Miley Cyrus. Um, it's interesting too that she apparently was photographed by a woman, uh, I guess a feminist in the states, and um, when she before she was uh, legal age and so on, and, and all these kind of poses as well. Same woman, by the way, who was the last one to. To uh, photograph John Lennon, she she photographed him nude actually in bed uh, on the on the day he died. It was the morning of the day he died. So uh, and again, she's got her own particular um, fancies. Put it that way. Put it that way. Now this article here says Swedish court. Now Sweden's very progressive. See, you understand there's terms you use all the time. You don't know what it means. If you go back into it's even in the French Revolution, define what uh, progressive means. Because the French Revolution had, had uh, just like today, they, they do networking with all kinds of disaffected or fringe groups. Uh, or they form the groups, in fact, there are people who thought they were the only ones who were on the fringe. And they use them. And the French Revolution, they actually had all kinds of strange people who wanted to, no laws for anything at all. And after the French Revolution, there were stacks of young children, orphans and all that, just running around to prostitute themselves in the streets because it was pushed big time there at that time. So you've got all these ones too who, who, who are beyond what they call anarchism. Anarchist, anarchist truly is meant for, for no government at all. You can't govern yourself, then you get government, but you can govern yourself. In other words, don't bother me and I won't bother you. That's, that's what it really means. But government likes problems. That's why it increases all the time. That's how it came into being in the first place. Back with more after this. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix, talking about basically how we're all manipulated by professionals. They're big, big organizations that got a lot of their ideas from marketers and propagandists and so on, and public relations, because they, they all use these same techniques on the general public to change and alter behavior and, and your attitudes too, and what you accept, what you won't accept, etc. And what you shouldn't accept, in fact. Anyway, the Swedish court rules that it is legal to masturbate in public, as long as it's not directed at anyone specific, it says. Now, Sweden's the avant-garde again of the sexual revolution. They took over from France, although France is in a bit of a mess too, as I say. It's, it's quite something to behold. And that all started from the French Revolution, uh, because that was all part of the revolution too. 
that marriage was to be ab- abolished too, because the same guys who brought you communism, the World Revolutionary Societies, brought you the French Revolution too, by the way. And get rid of marriage and have lots and lots of sex and all the rest of it with as many partners as you want, and it's okay, blah, 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 blah. Still on the go today, of course, and it's worked awfully well in that respect. It's called what it wanted. Anyway, a man 65 is acquitted of sexual assault after masturbating on the beach. I guess he was thinking of a fish called Wander. Court ruled he committed no crime since he was not directing his action towards a specific person. Anyone doing the same in the UK would face charges of indecent exposure. Now, is that last statement supposed to be so we can compare ourselves and maybe change too? So anyway, the court in Sweden has ruled it's acceptable to masturbate in public. And the ruling came in a landmark judgment following a case brought against a man seen touching himself on a beach, like touching himself, eh? The 65-year-old man who dropped his shorts close to the water at Drevigan Beach, Stockholm, and started to masturbate was initially charged with sexual assault. But a surprise ruling, the, the Sodendorn District Court acquitted the man. While the judgment stated it may be proven that the man exposed himself and masturbated on this occasion, it subsequently added that no offence had been committed. So what does that say about the judge too, eh? It says it bases findings on the fact that the man was not pleasuring himself towards a specific person. I, I guess to, to, I was thinking, I guess he wanted to, you know, what to them all. According to Sweden's English language news website called The Local. And prosecutors held their hands up in agreement, underlining that the law calls for the act to be directed at another person to count as a crime. See, the mob, the mass is worth nothing. I hope you understand that. So government sees all of you. You're, you're the mass. <laughs> Public prosecutor Olaf uh, uh, Rethammer told the Mitty newspaper he wasn't planning to appeal the ruling. He told the paper, and it says, For this to be a criminal offence, it's required that sexual molestation was directed towards one or more people. I think the court's judgment is reasonable. You understand, the whole, your whole law system, your legal system and your banking system and all the rest of it works together. Same people actually run it all and set it up for you. And in the old days, uh, that would be dealt with by the, the folk around there very, very quickly too. That was natural law. You see, natural law actually exists, believe it or not. And it says, decision raises questions about whether public masturbation will now be acceptable across Sweden, as long as it's not directed at another person. Now, about children in the area too, and all the rest of it too, etc. You see? Because you understand, paedophilia is, is to be normalized down the road. Those who, who brought you all the other things that are normalized through comedies and all the rest of it, and television, blah, blah, uh, are, are to bring you pedophilia and bestiality, by the way, because I've read their articles on the air here again after one of their big uh, world meetings that they had in 2001. They said, we've won all the rights for homosexuality, lesbians, and all the rest of it. Now we have to uh, promote uh, um, the push for, for pedophilia, or, or they called it intergenerational love. They count it and bestiality. Anyway, so there you go. It's okay to masturbate in, in, uh, in front of lots of people. Just don't do it in front of one person. And you, you think it's all crazy. No, it's not crazy. It's crazy like a fox, fox. That's what, that's what it is. That's what it is. It's all prearranged. All prearranged. And also, this one here, this is, um, <laughs> It's from the Guardian, of course, that thinks that all this stuff should go on. It says, local people should be at the heart of development from providing inspiration to being participants for new ideas. Too often they're forgotten because they really care about us, you see. Silent majority. One of the major triumphs of psychology and design over the last 40 years has been to demonstrate how human behavior is heavily influenced by context. Oh, no kidding, eh? 
Our beliefs, actions and experiences are entwined, entwined with the surrounding environment and our decisions are rarely made in isolation. Actually, they're made for you. Says, so for instance, we're more likely to judge other people's relationships as unstable if we're sitting on a wobbly chair rather than a normal one. Exposure to a clean smell can encourage people to wash their hands and challenges appear less difficult if we're standing with friends. Finding like these, uh, findings like these from across psychology, economics and neuroscience, this is all part of this behavior modification, broadly behavioral science, and I call it modification because that's what it is, folks are continuing to challenge long-held assumptions about the forces that shape our behavior. The result is a large base of evidence that can be used to guide and support people in making better decisions, in other words, the decisions that they want you to make. The problem is that many people, uh, or policy or planning decisions, are still blind to these insights. Walk for five minutes in any city, you'll experience huge variations in the effects of messages, services, and infrastructure designed to improve our health and well-being, as I word again, well-being. Where there's variation, there's a need to experiment to find what works and improve what doesn't. Cities must become living laboratories. Places where designers, scientists, companies and customers collaborate to investigate, make and test ideas with communities that live in them. Local people should be at the heart of development from providing inspiration to being participants for new ideas. And that's how they get focus groups. You can actually get the focus groups and, and alter their behavior completely. Completely. And that's gone, that's gone way back again when they're tr- testing all kind of marketing ideas. But actually they found too they could really change the attitudes of the folk who came in as volunteers to say they like this coffee over that coffee or whatever. They actually change behavior in many ways, even sexual by the way. Big time. Good designers are brilliant at managing the uncertainty of, of real world problems, observing people's lives to empathize with the reality they face and support they need. It's, it's written like something a social worker would give for you. You all need support and help, you see, because you're all dysfunctional. Only by enabling people to realize their good intentions will be able to tackle the biggest problems in society and alleviate pressure on the state. So to save the state, all this pressure is to get bigger and bigger and create more problems, which creates more fallout and that they come in to help the fallout. It says, as much as it's important for cities to listen to their citizens, behavioral scientists have taught us that we're often unaware of the real drivers of our decisions. While involvement with communities can uncover what beliefs, experience, and behaviors are important, scientific findings can explain why they occur. Now, don't forget communities. Communitarianism is a big thing. It's pushed worldwide. Britain's pushing under the, the, the great society. They call it the big society. Uh, but it's communitarianism where you've all had the same beliefs, by the, same, by the way, same opinions on everything. People declare And if you don't have the right opinions, then you don't have good well-being. There's something wrong with your well-being. You better get someone in there to, to change your attitudes so that you can have good well-being, you see. By combining creative thinking with scientific rigor, living laboratories can reveal unforeseen opportunities to improve people's lives through the design of products, services, and places. There's nothing that the making products is meant to last, folks. Never will be. As for greed, maximizing the profits, uh, it's not just building obsolescence. It's also aftermarket uh, replacements for all parts that are guaranteed to break down. They are open platforms, sourcing and prototyping ideas with people of all backgrounds, combining the expertise with lab, uh, with a lab with real world knowledge. The risk of innovation is managed by demonstrating proof of concept before scaling up. Randomized controlled trials, field trials, this is on the general populations, remember, are the best way of examining the general effect of an idea on individuals or groups in their natural environment. 
I guess it means the class that you're in, your natural environment. Smart technologies are making data collection easier and less obtrusive, providing the structure for continued feedback and improvement. And it's true, uh, all these universities have been studies for years by studying the internet and all your chatter and, and, and complaints and attitudes and so on. Do it all the time. So they, they give you a gallery illustrating 10 examples from around the world that are putting the principles into practice. Don't forget now, if you have different opinions from, from the ones, don't, and a, the problem is it's generally the majority that adopt the politically correct ideas and start parroting as though they had invented them themselves. Because they all want to be accepted. These, these are the masses. These, these, that's, that's the true masses, you see. They want to be the same as everybody else, they like sameness. And they wanted this thing called normalcy, this, this approved by those above them that gave them this normalcy. They like to be normal, you see. Even though it's always the new normal every other day or week or whatever. So it leads out to the picture all those who say, hey, I know what's going on. I don't want to go along with this. I'm not getting nudged or pushed or, or bullied by peer pressure into adopting these behaviors or, or ideas or opinions. So I'll put these articles up tonight at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com, as I say. And you can look up them up for yourselves and go deeper if you want to. But don't buy the regular books out there because the real stuff is just not put out to the general population, folks. The Cass Sunstein books and so on, it doesn't go into anything in detail because they can't tell you just how far advanced they are. In fact, you're the product of these guys. It didn't start with Sunstein either. As you go way back to Bernays' days, and even before Bernays, where do you think he got it all from? There are basically almost secret societies that have this information that run economics in countries down through centuries. How to make folk buy things, how to get government to force folk to buy things, or take things from government, which the government uses your money to buy, like vaccinations. And so on and so on. Anyway, from Hamish and myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God or your gods go with you.